This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening. My name is Matthew Herbst, and I am an associate teaching professor at UC San Diego, where I serve as faculty director of the Making of the Modern World program at Eleanor Roosevelt College, one of UC San Diego's six undergraduate colleges. As chair of the Burke Lectureship, it is my great pleasure to welcome you to our spring 2015 Burke Lecture entitled Zones of Islam, an Interpretive Framework from Extremism to Turkey's Gulen Movement by Professor Hakan Yavuz. Let me open by introducing the Burke Lectureship, and then we'll turn to tonight's Burke Lecture. The Burke Lecture is an endowed lecture series at UC San Diego, which honors the memory of Eugene Burke, a Paulist priest, distinguished teacher, theologian, and scholar who is committed to ecumenical dialogue and engagement. In fact, Father Burke participated as, a, as an advisor to the UN Human Rights Commission on Human Rights, chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, the namesake of our college, which drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Father Burke retired from Catholic University in 1976 and became closely associated with the UC San Diego Catholic community. And before his death in 1984, Father Burke joined with members of the Catholic, Episcopal, and Lutheran communities to outline the structure and scope of this lectureship. UC San Diego faculty and administration helped to shape the lectureship's organization thereafter. An endowment largely raised from hundreds of small donations, which the lectureship continues to need. There, is, there are envelopes out there. An endowment was created, and its funds are used to bring prominent speakers, like Professor Yavuz, to offer timely and engaging public lectures on religion and society. Let me thank my colleagues on the board of the Burke Lectureship. Let me thank our partners who made tonight possible, UC San Diego's International House, and we're joined by its director, Dr. Henry Megala. Let me thank the Global Forum, our partners in the Department of History, UC San Diego TV, and Eleanor Roosevelt College. And we are uh, honored to have its current provost and its incoming provost, Yvonne Evans, here tonight. And of course, let me thank our distinguished speaker, Professor Hakan Yavuz. So now, let me welcome Associate Professor of Literature and Burke board member, Babak Rahimi, who will introduce tonight's Burke Lecturer. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Bob Akrahimi, and um, I would like to thank Professor Matthew Herbst for giving me the chance to introduce Professor Hakan Yavuz. Um, I, it is indeed a great pleasure. It's a great pleasure because I have known Professor Yavuz for many years, and this goes back to 2004, when at um, a conference in Washington, D.C. on the theme of Islam and democracy, I was introduced to his ideas, I was introduced to him as a person. I was always impressed by uh, the arguments he was making. And just to give a little footnote here, um, late 1990s and early 2000s, were the years where the great debate was happening, the debate whether Islam and democracy can be reconciled. 
And there were so many different conferences, including this one, either pro or against, somewhere in between, where people were making arguments about this, what I would call a conceptual trap, because there were so many assumptions made about the idea of democracy in Islam. Of course, much of this was in the background was the 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989, that had given rise to questions about whether some regions in the world can be democratized. And of course, there were others, uh, while there were many who were talking about the end of history, there were also others who were talking about a major clash between civilizations. The late Samuel Huntington was leading that argument. It was really within this context that Professor Yavuz was making his scholarly contributions, which continues to this day. Uh, he was challenging uh, various simplistic views. The most popular one is the idea that Islam it cannot be reformed, is dogmatic, and is fixed, and therefore it can never be compatible to democracy. And also I think he was challenging another view within the political science field. The idea that somehow democracy in itself is inherently liberal, and as though liberalism itself has always been inherently democratic, which is not true. The marriage between liberalism and democracy was most likely a late 19th century invention. For over a decade, Professor Yavuz has introduced a new vocabulary, a new discourse in studying Islam and democracy in various fields that go from political science, sociology, Islam, Islamic, and religious studies. Professor Yavuz is um, currently at the prof uh, Professor of Political Science at the University of Utah. He received his earlier education in Ankara, Turkey. He received his MA from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and spent a semester at the Hebrew University in Israel, this is in 1990, and received his PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1998 in political science. In terms of scholarly works, he has studied the evolution of the Gulen movement in Central Asia, Turkey, and the Balkans since the mid-1990s. He has examined the impact of new liberal policies and how democracy and market economy have shaped Islamic movements in a very innovative field. Uh, in the context of Turkey, he has argued capitalism and democracy have led to the de development of the formation of a distinct Islamic movement that seeks to reconcile Islamic or democracy and modernity with the market economy. His focus on the Gulag movement uh, has been groundbreaking in the way he has defined a new formation of Islam as a result of the Gulag movement. A new imagined Islam defined in civil philosophy, a new civil philosophy, a type of religiosity oriented in economic prosperity in the form of building consensus through worldly action. Very interesting rethinking through Max Weber's sociology of religion. There are numerous uh, scholarly works here that i like to make reference to. Um, Professor um, Yavuz's uh, books, uh, the most famous, I would argue, and the most interesting, uh, Towards, Toward an Islamic Enlightenment, the Gulen Movement, uh, Muslim Democracy and Secularism in Turkey. The first one was published by Oxford University in 2013. Muslim Democracy and Secularism in Turkey was published by Cambridge University in 2009. And also Islamic Political Identity in Turkey, published in 2003 by Oxford University Press. He has um, published numerous articles, over 30. And these articles have touched on topics ranging from Islam, nationalism, Kurdish question, and modern Turkish politics. Professor, can I invite you up here? Well, can we? Thank you. Thank you, Baba. Um, well, thank you. Uh, 
I would like to thank the Bird Board and Matthew as well and uh, Professor Kayala for organizing this uh, lecture. Um, what I would like to do today is to um, introduce my new topic for my new book, trying to deconstruct or disaggregate so-called Muslim world. And uh, this is the, the first part I would like to focus on Islam. What is Islam? What is Islamism? And what is Islamicate? Or what we call in Turkish Islamiyet? I think these are related but not the same. In the second part, I would like to introduce my way of trying to pattern or zone the Muslim world. And then I would like to, in the third part, I would like to focus on Turkish Islam. Is there such thing called Turkish Islam? One of my arguments is that there is, uh, there are different types of Islam, and there is a Turkish Islam. And then in the last part, I would like to focus on the landscape of this Turkish Islam by focusing on the tension between social Islam represented by the Gulen movement and the political Islam very much represented by Justice and Development Party or known as AK Party or AKP. So um, I think the, one of the key questions uh, is what is Islam? Um, uh, is, uh, there are di uh, different debates out there for religious people. There is one unified, homogenous Islam. Uh, but there is also, uh, according to Samuel Huntington, he tends to homogenize Islam and imagines and creates Muslim world. This is, um, uh, is there a unified Muslim world? Can we talk about unified one entity? Another set of question is um, when we examine vernacularization of Islam or contextualization of this universal message of Islam, what are the critical factors in the process of this contextualization or vernacularization of Islam, this tension or dialectic between the text in the case of the Quran and Hadith, Hadith is the conduct and sayings of Prophet Muhammad, the Sunnah, and then the Quran on one hand, the text, and how this text is reconstructed, deconstructed, reconfigured in different contexts out there. So we cannot talk about um, one uh, type of Islam, but rather Islam is something constantly made and remade. It is not a fixed, certainly this making of Islam is conditioned by Quran and Hadith, but there is a great uh, room. And then, um, why do we see two major trends in the Islamic world today? One, I would call it a liberal Islam. Second type of Islam uh, is more or less the Sharia-based, um, what I call it a ghetto Islam. So these are the two major types, but those types are very much the product of certain socio-political contexts. So I would like to focus on some of those contexts. So it is very much the text in the context type of approach 
I am trying to develop in this new book. And then the question is, is there a Turkish Islam? I did work on this little bit. And to look at, uh, uh, is there such thing called Turkish Islam? Uh, Islam uh, is my own understanding as a Muslim, as a scholar who considers himself as a liberal Muslim. Um, Islam is the grammar of society. I would say um, most of the Muslims, they consider Islam as a grammar of society in terms of source of morality, ethic. But the Islam doesn't tell us what to say, I would argue, but rather it helps us how to say it in an intelligible way, that the Islam provides the grammar of society to communicate with one another, but it doesn't necessarily dictate what each side should say. There is a way of trying to create a framework of communication, understanding, and debate, especially there is no religious authority the way it is in the Christian churches. So it provides a more room for interpretation. Second, I would say Islam is morality. It is the identity, but sometimes and most of the time, Islam becomes an identity of resistance. So there is a certain code, um, certain normative system that uh, allows and justifies resistance. I think this is something very important, this issue of resistance against occupation, resistance against the negative impact of globalization. So there is this aspect of resistance, something very important. And the Islam also provides a, a major framework of what is right and what is wrong. And it is a, a source of a civilization, and the civilizational aspect is what is uh, Hutchison calls Islamicate, or that out of Islam there is an Islamic art, Islamic literature, that the social life, everyday life is punctuated on the basis of this Islamic normativity, that institutional aspect, what I call it, Islamicate. And Islam is not Islamism. Islamism is a modern baby. It emerged very much in the 19th century as a result of colonialism, that the Islam turned into an Islamism in response to colonial policies of European power. So in the reconstruction of Islam, or Islamism as a type of identity of resistance, very much an outcome of this colonial process, I think the colonialism is the key factor to understand contemporary Islam. That whole concept of jihad made highlighted as a result of this colonial legacy. So this, uh, what is Islamism? Islamism is an, um, uh, it, it, it desires to establish a Sharia-based state 
or Islamism could be regarded also try to highlight and raise Islamic consciousness or constructing Muslim society around Islamic normativity. But the Islamism, again, is a response. It is a response to modernity, especially it is a response to colonial legacy. Now, uh, when we look at the different parts of the world where uh, um, the Quran and the Sunnah plays an important role, what we see is that there are different types of Islams. And in the construction or in the reconfiguration of these Islams, um, uh, there are a number of factors, five major factors play an important role. One is the geography, especially what type of land. Uh, is it an arid versus the fertile land? I think this agricultural aspect is something very important. Second, Conversion pattern, is it a conversion as a result of force or is it as a result of trade networks? And what is the, how does conversion uh, to Islam took place? Third, the colonialism. I think the colonialism is the most important factor out of these five. That the colonialism, because it is the colonialism which helped to reconstruct Islamism. And then uh, the fourth factor is the, uh, the type of nationalism also. Uh, again, it is linked to this colonial process. What type of nationalism emerged? A state-seeking or nation-seeking type of nationalism. Also, it plays an important role. Another, the final, but the, after colonialism, most important factor to understand contemporary Islam and the contextualization of contemporary Islam is the oil type of economy. It plays an, a very important role whether you have a rentier economy based on oil, that the state is free from taxation and no connection between taxation and representation, or do you have a tax-based economy without oil such as Turkey, Malaysia, to some extent Indonesia, or uh, some other Muslim countries out there. I think this type of economy also plays an important role how people construct, reframe Islam. Um, as a result of these five factors, uh, in my new book, I am trying to develop seven different zones of Islam. There are sub-zones in between the major zones. One of the major zones, what I call it Arab zone, Persian zone, Turkish or Turkic zone there, South Asian zone, which includes India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, and Afghanistan, the zone four. Zone five is Southeast Asia, Malay, Indonesia, the Muslim minorities in Thailand. Again, in the zone Five, the Malay Indonesian zone, Islam is something like a cheese of the pizza. That it, it, uh, but underneath you have these local traditions and custom, but on the top you have uh, this thin cheese in a way that the Islam 
pulls together in Indonesia, Malaysia, this diversity and provides a general framework. And then the zone six is African zone. Uh, North Africa is included in the Arab zone, whereas the West and East Africa, for instance, Senegal, in the African zone. And then the final zone is the diaspora zone. But in the diaspora zone, um, the Muslim communities in the United States and also in Europe what we see is that the diaspora Islam is the reproduction of those six zones. For instance, uh, in Salt Lake City, you have two Shia mosques. One is Iranians, one is uh, for uh, um, Iraqi Shias. And then you have Bosnian mosque, the Sunni mosque. And then you have another uh, mosque for Pakistani and Indians. And then one now uh, is Somalian. So this ethnicity or ethnicity marked Islam is reproduced in diaspora. And it is too early to talk about Euro-Islam or American Islam. But what we see is that uh, uh, this reproduction or recreation of the ethnic nationality-based Islam. Um, the, I just would like to focus on only three zones because we don't have time, and the Arab zone, Persian zone, and Turkish zone uh, to highlight some of the issues. In the Arab zone, um, the Arabic language is very important because it is Islam or the Quran uh, never vernacularized. Still, the prayer uh, that, that uh, the language of Islam remains Arabic. So this is something very important. Second in the Arab zone, pre-Islamic legacy of semi-nomadic and tribalism played an important role. I would say the Islam emerged against tribalism to create a new identity, the Muslim identity, a new sense of community called Ummah against the tribal warfare. But that, is, that goals were very much defeated, I would say, in the heartland of the Arab zone. Still, the tribalism, unfortunately, a dominant uh, source of loyalty and identity more than, I would say, Islam. There are tension, again, in the Arab zone between this tribal and Islamic identity. And then also in the Arab zone, you have... Uh, Two major empires, this golden um, era or the Umayyad and Abbasid empire still shapes um, Arab understanding of Islam to some extent, uh, the glory or the Arab glory uh, over Islam. And, um, but the, this reconstruction of empires is, again, very complicated, how the different parts of the Arab world constructs these empires, a different issue. But the, another factor, I would say the most important factor, in addition to tribalism, colonialism, and then I will come to that, the oil. These are the three most important factors. Colonialism, again, the contemporary map, of the Arab world, North Africa, Fertile Crescent, very much created as a result of World War I. These borders and states are very much the product of colonialism. I think this colonialism creates a number of crises in the region, the legacy of colonialism. One of the crises, I would say, um, 
the crisis of legitimacy, crisis of identity, crisis of borders in the region. These are very much the outcome of colonial legacy. Another factor in the Arab world, even though some countries don't have oil, but again, for instance, Egypt, but they very much depends on those oil-rich countries, that the oil, the rentier state, you have a state structure, they are free from their society, and very much these governments are protected by Uncle Sam or the European powers for, in return, access to oil. So the oil in a way, creates uh, these countries hostage to major European powers and United States, but at the same time, the oil, the presence, oil, presence of oil does not help the formation of civil society or, or creation of democracy because that connection between taxation and representation is not there. There is another event in the Arab zone which is very important, Arab-Israel conflict, especially the War of 1967. The 1967 war created the siege mentality in the Arab world, and we will come to this. This is something very important to there are two dates for Arabs, very important. One is 1258, the Mongol uh, conquest of uh, Iraq. The second, I would say, 1967. These two dates are the collapse of time. These two dates very much created a major trauma, especially 1967 war. And we will come to that. And the Persian zone is um, much more complicated because we are talking about high civilization before Islam. And the Persian zone, the Iran had major urban centers, major population centers before Islam. Tribalism wasn't a major issue here as well. And again, agriculture, agrarian structure was very dominant in the Persian zone. But in the Persian zone, um, the Safavid uh, Islam very much shaped by the Safavid institution and Safavid um, legacy. And the, in the Persian zone in Iran, uh, historically uh, very much a weak army and weak state, it has a positive and negative side of this weakness. And then in the Persian zone, also the religious scholars historically remained very much outside the political authority, and they became the leader of civil society. And civil society or uh, societal associational life in the Persian zone is much thicker. But in the Persian zone, you also have the legacy of colonialism and also the oil plays an important role, especially since 1973, I would say, social and political structure in Persia very much shaped, to a great extent, shaped by oil and oil-based external connection. Now, when we move to Turkish zone, uh, that uh, in the Turkish zone, uh, that one thing is very key, uh, type of Islam in the Turkish zone, I would consider it a Sufi Islam. The Sufism plays an important role in Turkish zone. And the Sufism uh, is 
something, um, the legacy of pre-Ottoman and Ottoman also during the Ottoman period, they played an important role. Uh, the Sufism has three aspects, and that those three aspects shapes even today's contemporary Islamic movement. I would like to remind that the Gulen movement very much comes out of that Sufi tradition. I consider it as a neo-Sufism. I will explain what I mean by neo-Sufism. But the Sufism, the first... Uh, there is an understanding that the, there is a self within the self. It is more spiritual-oriented, ethical Islam, less about Sharia, about externality, more about the inner side of Islam in Sufism. It is more or less an ethical Islam, the Sufism. The second, the Sufism provides a set of social networks, and these social networks, they play an important role in terms of building communities, into, uh, and these networks also play a very important economic uh, role and function as well. And during the colonialism, some of the Sufi networks became a militia group as well, especially in the Caucasus, in certain part of Africa, that this uh, uh, jihad al-Akbar means the greater jihad turned into a small jihad. The greater jihad means the struggle with yourself, uh, attempt to domesticate or control your lower desire. This is what is called a great jihad. Then there is also the small jihad, and the whole concept is actually reconstructed within the context of colonialism. Again, colonialism plays an important role here. But these super networks uh, played an important role even when today's Turkey was occupied. These super networks helped Mustafa Kemal to create a national resistance against occupying forces. In the case of Kazım Karabekir, in Istanbul, some of the Sufi tekkes became a center for resistance against colonialism. So the Sufism is something very important. The modern processes, I would say, reactivated Sufism. Sufism uh, today, uh, in a different format, became much more important. In the Turkish zone, the Ottoman legacy is something very important because of three reasons. One, um, Ottoman Empire was a frontier state, and type of Islam also constructed in the Ottoman Empire is a frontier Islam. This is the word I borrow from Bernard Lewis, a leading scholar on the Middle East uh, and Arab and Persian and Islam. And Lewis considers the Ottoman Islam a frontier Islam. This frontier Islam... Um, creates this orthodox and heterodox tension is built within the frontier Islam because the Ottoman Empire is trying to expand in the Balkans and you have the Christian Orthodox community, communities. And the type of Islam here is a, not a full-time Islam but a part-time Islam. It doesn't require you to become a full-time first generation. You can become a part-time Muslim, but the second generation could become a full-time. So there is this uh, 
the Bektashi orders, especially in Albania, or the conversion to Islam, these Sufi networks played an important role. So the Ottoman legacy, another aspect of the Ottoman legacy is the ulama, the religious scholars, unlike in the Persian zone, they were state employees, state functionaries, that the ulama uh, very much part of the state. So Ottoman Islam is a state-centric Islam. What that means, unlike in the Arab zone or in the Persian zone, for the Turks, Islam and state are closely connected. That the legitimacy of religious scholars, they derive by serving the state. I would say the state is higher than Islam in, the, in terms of the need. And this is very much reflected in terms of the kanun and sharia debate in the Ottoman Empire, that the kanun, that the the, the declaration of sovereign uh, more stressed more than the Sharia. Uh, there wasn't a major conflict between the two, but the, uh, the Kanun or the Yasa became something more important. So this state-centric Islam also helped us to understand deepening of secularism in contemporary Turkey as well, because the secularism carried out by the state. So this historical legacy is something very important. It, it, it shapes how Islam today understood. Fethullah Gülen, for instance, the Gülen movement, a very state-centric, also nationalist as well, in terms of the Turkish language, and in terms of the trying to serve or drive their legitimacy by serving the state, that the Gulen movement, having these close ties with the state, helped them to overcome some of the legitimacy problem. Because in Turkey today, the state is still generates more legitimacy than, I would say, Islam. So this is something uh, very much pa part of the Turkish uh, understanding of Islam. The third, the Islam in the Turkish zone is something like a melting pot. That uh, the Muslims of Turkey, very much they, uh, the Turkey is a nation of refugees, historically, a nation of refugees. Uh, today's Turkey, I would say, during World War One, had around 30% uh, Christian, rest Muslim. But today, there is even not 1% Christian in Turkey. But at the same time, in Bulgaria, you had 50% Muslim, and today you have only 10%. In Salonika, you had a large Jewish community and 30% Muslim. Today, there is none. So what you have in the Balkans, that the people who created modern Turkey, they are the children of persecuted minorities in the Balkan. So the contemporary Turkey, the founding philosophy of today's Turkey is also very much constructed as a result of this trauma or the major ethnic cleansing, massacres, and genocidal campaign against Muslim population in 1878, and during the Balkan Wars, and during the World War I. So look at the leader of Mustafa Kemal, the founder of Turkey. He was born in Salonika, 
and he lived most of his life in Macedonia. And the cabinet of today's Turkey until 1960, most of the cabinet members, the ministers, they were born in the Balkans. They are very much the children of these refugees. So this is what brought these people together as a glue was the Islam. The Turbash, Albanian, Boshnak, Pomak. These are different ethnic groups in the Balkans, Circassians, Chechen. All these different ethnic groups brought together under one, the Turkish identity, with the help of Islam. So the Islam becomes the most powerful national, not a religious, but the national glue for the construction of Turkish nation. So this is another aspect. This is also one of the major challenges for the Kurdish movement today. Because of this Islam, most of the religious Kurds, they vote for religious party rather than ethnic Kurdish uh, party. So the religion still plays a very important role. There are also two good sides of Turkey. Thanks God there is no oil in Turkey. It is the blessing of God, I think, no oil there. And uh, second, there is no colonial legacy, that the colonialism, Turkey was semi-colonized as a result of capitulation and Duyunu Umumiya, especially the capitulations played an important role, but it was not directly colonized. So there is no defeated, this colonialism, lack of colonialism is also important to understand why Turkish Muslims, more than the, some of the secularists now in Turkey, want to join the European Union. They do not have that legacy, that wound of the colonialism. I think that is something very important today. The Gülen movement, for instance, one of the major actors pushing Turkey to join the European Union. Uh, because of a number of reasons. But uh, you would not see the same thing in Iran, Iranian zone, or in the Persian zone. The religious groups are tend to be much more uh, anti-West and anti-United States. And the Islamic groups in Turkey, because of the Russian legacy, because of the communism, tend to be more pro-NATO and pro-American as well. And then there is another issue. The Turkey, after the War of Independence, had only one war, the Cyprus War, and they won. Unlike the Arabs, they don't have this legacy of 1967. Turks have 1974, the war over the Cyprus, they occupied or conquered, whatever you call it, the half of Cyprus, and at least there is no such a defeated mentality. I think that has also played a, a very important role. Now, um, there is a, uh, a, one of my famous books on uh, the Islam and modernization and Islam is the book by Daniel Lerner, the famous book called Passing of Traditional Societies. Lerner, he carried out his research in the late 1950s in Turkey, and he argued that the Turks have two options, Mecca or mechanization, either secularism or Islam. And he argued that the trend on the basis of his uh, work in Balgat, a small town in Ankara, but now it is integrated into Ankara, said the Turks are uh, 
choosing mechanization over Mecca and the modernity very much going to prevail. But what we see today in Turkey that um, modernity with Islam, democracy with Islam, globalization with Islam. In other words, if Turkey is going to modernize, I think this is the legacy of Özal and also Erdogan as well, that you cannot succeed or achieve anything against Islam because it is the grammar of society. So in order to modernize the society, in order to democratize society, it had to be in Islam. In other words, what we are seeing, the Turks, they want both. They want Mecca and mechanization, the modernity at the same time, but they want to reconstruct Reimagine Islam according to needs of modernity. This is the issue, this is the job carried out by the Gulen movement, trying to find the verse in Quran to justify capitalism. I think this is something uh, very important. And also finding verse in Quran to facilitate the democratization in the country as well. They reimagine the text according to needs of the new evolving context becomes something very important. In other words, um, what we see, this historical, uh, uh, historical uh, there are different uh, periods in the evolution in the reconfiguration of the Islamic or the religious zone in Turkey or the religious landscape, we, what you have very much four major types of actors. They claim to represent Islam. One is a state Islam. I will come to that. Second one is a social Islam, the Sufi and Naqshband orders. I'm, uh, and the third one is the political Islam. But the political Islam becomes important in the, after 1970s. And then the fourth one, a radical small Islamic groups such as Kurdish Hezbollah. The, they are also part of this religious Islamic landscape. So you don't have one actor, but you have a competing and conflicting actors out there. In order to understand the contemporary Islam, uh, the legacy of Kemalism or Mustafa Kemal becomes something very important. Uh, the Kemalism, known as the ideology or the founding philosophy of modern Turkey, very much had two goals. One, to create a secular European nation state. So secularism and nationalism were two major goals of Kemalism. And Kemalism also tried to disestablish Islam or cleanse Islam or force Islam out of public sphere and including in the private sphere as well. It was um, very much the Jacobin secularism very much helps us to understand what the early Kemalist project tried to do in the, in the country in terms of getting rid of religious symbols, religious institutions, uh, changing alphabet, and, uh, but this secular Jacobin process uh, reactivated 
and it had to turn Islam into an oppositional identity with the help of the Sufi orders, especially the Nakshibendi order, became a very powerful force. And the Nur movement, uh, it's a no-Sufi, the Nakshibendi is a type of Sufi order, and the Nur movement is very much uh, out of that Nakshibendi tradition, it evolves out of Nakshibendi tradition. The difference between the Nakshibendi, it is a tekke, large-based or the sheikh-based, the Sufi master-based order, whereas the Nur movement is text-based movement. Now, as a result of Kemalism, literacy expanded. So people are not learning, not oral Islam, but the print Islam is becoming more dominant as a result of this literacy becomes something very important. And the religious communities are not Sufi-based, but we consider them as textual communities. Each one evolves around major text. So the text now becomes something very important. And the Nur movement, uh, Said Nursi, the founder of the Nur movement, uh, occurred. The Islamic movement in Turkey very much shaped by the Kurdish ulama or Kurdish religious scholars. This is another reason of this tension between Mustafa Kemal, who wants to create a secular Turkish nation versus and assimilate the Kurds in that process. And the Kurds, they try to organize within Islam or Islam becomes a surrogate identity against this secularizing, nationalizing policies of Mustafa Kemal. So there is this ethnic dimension of the Islamic movement. This made the state, especially the military, to become much more suspicious of uh, Islamic movement because of that Kurdish dimension, secessionist dimension that made the state to worry. But the, the Kemalist policies help to uh, create a new institutional framework for the evolution of a new type of Islam that is a print Islam. The second a major period um, is the, uh, the normalization period uh, that the Turkey becomes a multi-party system. And in this uh, multi-party uh, system, we have... Um, uh, now the religious identity enters into public sphere uh, by supporting oppositional party, even though those parties are not necessarily uh, religiously oriented. I think this is uh, something very important in the normalization period that the, it allowed the print Islam to link itself with the state institution that the political space provided a room for religious identity and religious debate to interact with outside religious discourses and debates that played an important role. Also during this period, Turkey had a major leftist and communist threat. Uh, 
uh, because Turkey had a long border with Soviet Union of the Black Sea, Georgia, Armenia, all part of Nachivan, uh, part of the Soviet Union. So the Islamic movement in Turkey tried to link with the state by taking very anti-communist attitude. So the peace between the state and the Islamic groups uh, achieved as a result of this external or internal threat of the left and communism. The Gulen, again, uh, he is the founding member of the Association Communism La Mujadele Derneği, that means association to fight against or struggle against communism. He's a founding member of this uh, anti-Soviet, uh, anti-communist movement. So this peace or normalization between religion and state is very much carried out against um, the Soviet threat and also internal leftist movement inside the country. And the Turkish Islamic movement remained very anti-Russian and pro-American during this period. This is the most important, I would say, after Ataturk, the most important leader who shaped Turkish society is Turgut Özal. Not Erdogan, not Demirel, not Ecevit, but Özal. Özal, uh, Atatürk carried out a socio-cultural reforms to modernize the society. Özal provided the economic dimension to those cultural reforms. In other words, here, with the Özal neoliberal economic policies, uh, it opened up Turkey to outside. The first time you have private education with Özal, and the private TV and radio stations. So the public language start to change. Now you had, with the, during this period, different interpretations of religion, the secularism. So what we see, neoliberal economic policies created uh, an opportunity spaces in Turkey to reimagine Islam and the Özal who also provided a full support for Gülen, Fethullah Gülen, and Fethullah Gülen very much recruited uh, the Özal helped him to become part of this economic processes that the Gülen movement is not only had religious uh, media outlet, but there is also economic dimension. And it started with, during the Özal period, as a result of these economic opening or neoliberal economic policies, what we see is that the, the jihad is perceived in the market, that the now that the, in the market you have to succeed. I think this uh, economic mentality became dominant. It started with Özal, that the economy, the efficiency becomes an important principle with Özal, and that principle we will see will undermine the Gülen movement as well that this economic mentality, as it become, became more dominant, it start to dictate religious mentality as well, that the religion became another type of corporation or co commodity to buy and sell. 
I will come to that when we discuss the um, the Gulen movement. But the, during this period, um, Özal was the uh, he came from a Nakshibandi Sufi order, Iskandar Pasha. He was a Sufi himself, and Özal was the first leader to apply for EU membership in 1987. This is something very important that uh, the, these neoliberal economic policies and Islamic movement, they saw their future within Europe, not against Europe. This is something Özal played an important role. And then during this period also you see the pluralization of Islamic movement as well. And then um, we have now the AK Party period, still the, it is going on, a number of the glasses half full, half empty, uh, but unfortunately AK Party did an excellent job in economy. In 2002, the, the per income was around two to $3,000, now it is $12,000 in Turkey. It became a middle income country as a result of economic policies of uh, Recep Tayyip Erdogan. But today you have, um, and the EU was one of the major goal of AK Party, but the Europeans unfortunately did not help Turkey to join EU but they very much rejected Turkey, and that, I would say, played an important role for Erdogan to look for alternative options out there. And what we are seeing today, that there is an identity crisis in the country, there is a big debate, again, external factor, the European response, I would say, played an important role here. Now let me uh, talk about the Gulen movement. Um, so I hope we have some framework of understanding of uh, Turkish Islam and its evolution. And the Gulen movement is very much part of the Sufi state-centric market-oriented Islam. So it is shaped by those historical, political, and economic factors, the Gulen movement, that are four major uh, goals of the movement. One is it tries to synthesize religion with science. That it, it because the Kemalist tradition or Kemalist conception of secularism try to portray religion as anti-science. What you have here with the Gulen movement, it tries to reconcile science and religion, but it goes to the extreme sometimes to find or turn Quran into a scientific book. Rereading Quran under the impact of natural sciences. So there is this uh, an attempt to synthesize religion and science. The second, the Gulen movement uh, played an important role in terms of democratization and the uh, uh, thickening of the civil society as well. There is no, the Turkish Islam is a type of Islam, it is Islam without Sharia. This is the simple definition of Turkish Islam, Islam without Sharia. What I mean by that, there is no Sharia debate in Turkey. 
that very much it's an ethical debate what is going on in the country. The ethical and identity aspect of Islam are the major debate, not the Sharia, because of the powerful state institutions play an important role in the case of Turkey. And the Gulen also tries to raise religious consciousness. That also becomes something very important. And in the Gulen movement, it is not about afterlife, I would say, emphasis is more here and now, to be powerful in this world. I think that to become powerful, in a way the Gulen movement succeeded and became powerful. As it became powerful, it also planted the seeds of its own problems. So as Gulen movement penetrated into modern processes, these modern processes also penetrated into Gulen movement. In the end, the, the Özal's market rationality that was introduced by Özal, the competition, efficiency, the success, very much prevailed over religious mentality. I think this created a number of problems. Uh, the Gulen movement, uh, Islam for Gulen, means uh, first and foremost a civil philosophy. It is a grammar to communicate, to talk, to build a language. The second Islam for Gulen is a bridging with other Abrahamic and religious communities. The bridging is something very important and also bonding turning Islam into a modern glue against this integration of the capitalist society. There is this attempt, emphasis on bonding. And then uh, Gulen is uh, very much shaped by his mother in his memoirs. He always talks about his mother, that he learned Islam from his mother. I call it a feminized Islam, the Gulen's Islam. The feminized Islam in the sense that it is very much about emotion and when you see him, he cries a lot. That the emotional aspect is very important. It comes out of his mother. That the mother and grandmother, more than his father and grandfather. So the gender very much um, shapes his understanding of Islam, what we see. And Islam for Gulen is about the character formation. And his education system is very similar to some of the Catholic education system. If you ask me, as I said, if we want to summarize Turkish Islam, it is Islam, we said, without Sharia, ethical Islam. If we understand the Gulen movement, I will say it is a Muslim opus Dei. Well, it, there is a good and bad. Uh, the, you know, I don't know to what extent you know Opus Dei, but it is a Muslim Opus Dei in terms of elitism. Opus Dei in terms of emphasis on discipline and work ethic. It is a type of Opus Dei in terms of emphasis on finance and economic activity. It is something very important. So the Gulen movement um, doesn't believe in preaching, but teaching Islam through good examples, the tamsil rather than tabli, what they call, that the teaching Islam through good examples. You need to not to go and preach someone else about Islam. You need to express and act like a good Muslim so that you can teach Islam.
It is uh, teaching Islam through examples. I think this is one of his philosophy. And the Gülen movement's activities are very much concentrated around these three areas of education. The knowledge is something very important. Second, the media, very important. The images creating a consensus in society, also intimidating opposition as well. So there is this aspect as well. It is not everything is uh, white. There are, unfortunately, certain aspects which created a number of problems. We will come to that. And then the third um, area of activity, very much the service sector and economy. But the Gülen movement provided what Özal needed a type of individual to serve and help market economy to succeed the neoliberal economic policies. So they did an excellent job in, in natural sciences to provide that technical knowledge for Turkey to become a middle-income country. So in a way, the Gülen movement provided some of the ground for AK Party and some of the economic success in the country as well. Uh, there are some problems with the movement. I, would, I, I dealt with them in my book, came out uh, last year, and the problems are, um, one is the politicization of the movement, because, again, it had to do with this legitimacy in Turkey is embedded in the state. So the movement, as it became powerful, it tried to consolidate its legitimacy by attaching the state or serving for the state. Because this is something in Turkey today, the state still plays an important role in the political culture of the country. And the politicization of the movement created a number, and they allied themselves first with Özal and then Tansu Çiller, including Ecevit, they had a very close ties with the Social Democrat Party as well in the country. And then they, in a way, became the agent of AK Party. And they, the, the movement totally politicized by AK Party, by AK Party providing them certain incentives, and the movement in turn expecting more goodies and access and more position in the government as well. And the second, uh, the lack of critical thinking. The Gulen education system is very similar to Chinese and Korean education system. Incredibly good in math, physics, chemistry, or computer type of things, but very bad when it comes to humanities in terms of the critical thinking, creativity. This is for instance, Gulen movement is very successful in middle or high schools, but it is miserable when it comes to higher education, the universities. They have the first private university, and they could not even become the 50th uh, in terms of publication in, inside Turkey. But the Gulen movement has over 10 universities in different parts of the world. But they are not very good in social sciences or humanities, but incredibly successful in math, physics, chemistry, or technical domain and technical areas. And another problem is the gender gap in the movement. It is still a male-dominated, but this is the same for overall Turkish culture. 
that it is a male-dominated, so the Gulen movement coming out of that milieu, it is also very male-dominated. Uh, and uh, there are almost no women in the higher position. But that is true for other groups as well. If you look at the Art Party, including the Social Democrat Party in the country, very much male-dominated as well. So this gender gap is also another problem. And then there is a lack of transparency. This is, again, a big issue. There are reasons because of the legacy in Turkey that the religious groups were very much persecuted. So there is the secrecy. Again, it evolved out of the government policies, but that is still created a number of problems. This lack of transparency is an issue. This is, makes the movement something like Opus Dei, as you know, some of the Catholics are also not very comfortable with some of the workings of Opus Dei movement. And then the Gulen movement became so successful economically that the prophet prevailed over prophet Muhammad. In other words, the prophet Muhammad very much imagined as a merchant, as a businessman, a successful business person, uh, uh, more than the aspect of merhamet, or what we call merhamet, mercy, and um, so I think this competition in the market turned the movement into a, another corporation, like the Mormon Church. I come from Utah. Uh, the Mormon Church is very much similar as well. The success is something very important. Success shows how close you are to God. So you have to succeed, especially in the market. So the market became something very important. In conclusion, what we see in the Gulen movement, unfortunately, not only the Gulen movement, but the overall Islamic movements in Turkey, because of this fast economic growth, because of this competitive environment and the emphasis on efficiency and uh, success, you have an Islam without ethical core. I call it an Islamless Islam. That uh, the ethical core is either disappeared or it became too weak. This is not only the Gulen movement. It is the case, especially situation is much worse for the governing party, the AK party. Um, what you had... Uh, the, as you read on the media as well, a major fight going on in the country between the movement and Erdogan. They were running the country, they run together, and the, some of the success of the AK Party, the ground prepared by the Gulen movement in, in, in economy, in education, in a number of other areas. But uh, I would say uh, there are six reasons for this fight. One is the social origin of these two are very different. Gulen movement uh, is very much coming from a different uh, Nur movement, more social Islam, whereas AK Party more or less political Islam, and the political Islam of the AK Party is shaped by the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. So you have, whereas the Gulen movement coming out of Turkish Sufi tradition, AK Party is shaped to some extent by 
the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and in other parts of the world. Second, there is a disagreement over foreign policy. Gulen movement remains very pro-American and very pro-Israel, whereas the AK Party is very critical of Israel and pro-Palestinian. So you have a also Gulen movement is very anti-Iranian. Um, Whereas AK Party used to be very pro-Iranian, not anymore, because of the crisis in Syria. So there are also, Gulen movement very much sees the future of the country in Europe, whereas AK Party is searching new alternatives for a while. They wanted to be leader of the Arab Muslim world, but uh, no one wanted Turkey, unfortunately. And uh, so there is also this foreign policy aspect and debate. And then um, also the Gulen movement, uh, the government allowed Gulen movement to control, not to penetrate, infiltrate, but control the Ministry of Education, Ministry of Justice, and the Ministry of Interior. These three ministries were very much controlled by the Gulen movement, and they excluded all other people. They wanted to be only one, and they became the agent to serve for the government, and the government had a tension with the secular sector of the bureaucracy, especially the military. So the Gulen movement became the cleaners. They cleansed the secular bureaucrats from the system for the AK party. But, in, uh, but then the AK Party now, what you see, is in the process of cleansing the Gulen movement from these ministries as well. So they unfortunately did a very bad job, the Gulen movement. And they are, the Erdogan claims that he was used by the Gulen movement, but the Gulen movement claims that they are used by Erdogan. So we don't know. We will find out maybe in the future what really happened. Um, Gulen movement um, became, again, it is an opposite movement. It didn't have the grassroots, but they had this illusion that some way they could defeat AK Party through the electoral system. But what we found out that the Gulen movement remains as an elitist small group. It doesn't have much grassroots. And this is... Uh, tested as a result of last two elections. Um, there is also the fight over the military as well. The Gulen movement became very aggressive against the military. But the corruption of AK Party, that when Gulen movement forced out of the system, all of a sudden they said, well, AK Party is very corrupt. But my goodness, they were corrupt since 2002. But the corruption is not a big issue in Turkey. As long as economy grows between 6 to 7%, no one cares corruption. Like Italy too, under Berlusconi. As long as economy grows, People doesn't care much about corruption. Corruption becomes an issue if it is converges with other social and economic issues. In itself, it doesn't mean much, but now they, there is a big fight going on, and the government feels that they are sieged by the movement, whereas the movement, they believe that they are persecuted by the governing party, and this tension and conflict is still going on. Uh, to conclude that the Turkish um, experience is something different. There is no such thing called Turkish model. 
as I try to explain the historical trajectory and social and economic evolution of the country is very different. But today, I would say, unfortunately, we have Islamless Islam because of there is very little investment in religious education in the country. Second, there is no major ethical moral debate. There's market economy, even the universities, look at the universities are now all governed by the market model, you know. The, some of the churches are also governed by market model as well. This hegemony or the tyranny of the market model is the same thing happening in Turkey. Unfortunately, in Turkey, as far as morality and ethical issues were concerned, Islam was the only grammar. Now, if you don't have that powerful aspect or the secular ethic, and uh, you have a public sphere naked because of uh, I think this hegemonic aspect of uh, the market, the country is very much divided, society is divided along religious and ethnic lines. This is also one of the major issues. And the European Union, unfortunately, otherized Turkey to the point that there is a major backlash in the country against the European Union. There is a search for identity and the crisis of social contract. How could we live together? I think this is one of the fundamental questions. And to what extent in the search for contract, to what extent um, religion, could it play some role? Or we should assume as if God is dead and create a new social contract on that basis. So these are the debate going on in Turkey, and we don't know what is going to happen. But the bottom line, I would say political Islam very much failed. It, Islam is very successful as an identity of resistance. When it comes to power, we have seen in different parts of the world, it failed. In, in the case of Egypt, in the case of Turkey, I don't see much uh, success there. To conclude, uh, what we are seeing uh, today um, in Turkey and in other parts of the zones, that there are two trends overall, there are uh, two major trends of understanding of Islam becoming dominant. One trend, I call it a liberal Islam, wherever you have expanding opportunity spaces in terms of democratization, public sphere, and market. These are the three factors for liberal Islam. The expansion of market, uh, democracy, and public sphere, you tend to get a liberal type of Islam that they reimagine Prophet Muhammad as a merchant, very much in line with the Gulen movement. And wherever you have tax-based economy, the middle class, sizable middle class, and the effective public sphere in terms of the debate and discussion, you tend to get a more liberal Islam wherever you have a powerful state institutions. In the second, in the situation of failed states, uh, you have, or in some cases, the, uh, the state is not failed, 
but has very little, the governing elite has very little legitimacy and they free themselves from, with the help of oil from the population, you, you get a ghetto, enclave Islam. The emphasis and debate is very much about Sharia. People want to create a law and order through religious law, the Sharia. And this is what we are seeing is the second type or second major trend emerging under the impact of globalization. In other words, those who are winning as a result of globalization, they tend to create a liberal Islam. They construct a liberal Islam. Those who are in the losing end or have a number of problems, they tend to imagine more Sharia-based uh, or Islamic State. They seek or desire a more authoritarian type of Islam. And I will end here. Thank you very much. Thank you, Professor Yavuz. I, uh, we have questions, and I'd like to ask the first one. Please, if you do have your questions in the index, please raise it to Professor Matthew Herbst could pick it up and he bring it to me. I'm thinking maybe I could actually read the questions and you could answer. Okay, sure. is that be Okay, so the first question is, is there a debate about global warning, warming, warming or evolution in Turkey? Is the Gulen movement part of that conversation? Well, uh, well, there is a debate, but it, uh, yes, indeed. And Gulen movement is much more sensitive. Some of these uh, uh, topics and uh, about the Darwinism, you said uh, evolution. Yes, uh, the evolution is um, uh, there is no problem. Uh, Gulen movement is never turned into a problem. It is not a big issue in Turkey. The uh, the evolution. There is not much debate out there. Okay. Yeah. Global warming, uh, there is, they are environmentally, the Gulen movement, I would say, one of the most conscious because it's a global movement and they are also very much shaped what is happening in California. The global warm, uh, warming is not a big debate in Salt Lake City, but I know it's a big debate here. But um, it is an issue that the Gulen movement, I think, much more sensitive on these human rights issue, environmental questions as well. It's an issue here, of course, one, one reason we don't have water. Um, will Turkey become a member of the EU? If so, why or when? when? I don't think Turkey will not and should not also become a member of EU. Because uh, Europeans are very much uh, what we see the current debate in Europe, they define being European in opposition to Islam. And I don't think Turkey has any chance to overcome that cultural prejudice in Europe because the Muslims are still viewed as the other, internal other, external other. There is a Muslim question in Europe as there was a Jewish question in Europe. Certainly uh, causes are different, but there is very much debated within that framework. And look at the European attitude toward Albania. 60% Muslim, they are still very hesitant about Albania. It is part in the Balkans. When it comes to the Bosnian, 
the Bosnia-Herzegovina. Again, they accepted Serbia, a state which killed over 100,000 Muslims. They accepted Serbia without any problem. But when it comes to Bosnia-Herzegovina, they are not sure. Still, there is a debate going on. So there is no way we can overcome the racism in Europe. And this is one issue. But on the other hand, the public opinion in Turkey used to be 75% pro-EU. Now it is only 35%. Because they see the problem in Greece, problem in Bulgaria, problem in other countries, member of Europe, and Turkey is doing economically much better than those countries. So economically, there is no reason and also the, there is a self-confidence in the country that they can do without EU. Um, is the Pacific Institute part of the Golan movement in the U.S. and what is its work? The, the Pacifica Institute? Pacifica Institute. Why is Golan in exile from Turkey? Well, the Pacifica is part of the Gulen movement, and Gulen is uh, exiled in Turkey because uh, there was a court case, uh, but the Gulen won the court case. Uh, there was an intimidation and persecution by the military. That also was one of the reasons why Gulen totally allied himself with AK Party, because of that military threat made Gulen to totally surrender himself and his movement to the service of AK Party, and, um, but it, it created more problem. But, that, that, uh, but the Pacific, as far as I know, it is part of the movement. Okay, and we have time for one more question. Would you say Islam is incompatible then with modernity, Western democratic political system? It's a general question, which might be a good way of ending this, this talk. So. Well, it depends. Uh, as far as what I would say, the modernity is very much reason-based system, whereas the religions are more or less based on revelation. And um, uh, if you look at Abrahamic religions, none of them, I would say, fully compatible with democracy and modernity as religious tradition. But Religions are not something fixed, as I try to argue. They are constantly formed, reconfigured, reimagined. I would say um, Islam is compatible with modernity as much as Christianity or Judaism. Uh, it is coming out of that tradition. Uh, certainly there might be some issues, but I would say overall... Islam, what we see in Malaysia, one of the most developed region in Russia is Tataristan. Uh, and uh, some of the major universities are also the Kazan State University, in, uh, and it is one of the most advanced uh, part of Russia. And Tataristan is a Muslim, and you don't hear that much. Uh, it is inside Russia. And if you look at the Bosnians, there are other Muslim communities. Islam, I would say, compatible with democracy, with modernity. Islam, even compatible with communism. And there were some people try to create or justify communism on the basis of Islam. In other words, look at South African experience. The white 
minority tried to use Bible to justify apartheid system, and they tried to justify inhumane system on the basis of the teaching of Jesus, whereas Desmond Tutu, on the other hand, used the same text to fight against apartheid system. So the same, I would say, or, or if you look at what happened in Europe uh, or in the United States, the slavery, how people try to justify on the basis of Christianity, but the Martin Luther King turned it upside down and tried to fight against racism on the basis of religion. I think Islam is the same. Uh, so I, I, I cannot... It is as compatible as other religious traditions. Um, it depends on social and political context. Um, thank you, Professor Yavuz. And I think this is, uh, very much highlights the broader discussion we are having on campus on Islam. And Professor, thank you so oh, thank much you. for thank coming again. here thank you. and, and thank you. sharing your views. Thank, thank, you. thank you so thank much. You. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. again. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.